games are art. Games are creative. It doesn't have to all be about making money and maximizing profits. Like you can come together as a group of people with different expertises and just make something that's that's beautiful and that's okay. Welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. And today I'm joined by Aaron Bush, co-founder of Navic, Matt Dayan, senior product manager at EA Mobile, and Anil Dasgupta, who you may not recognize his name because he's a new joiner on our podcast. Um, he's a co-founder of First Light. I found out that he also likes to be called Grandmaster of Games. So maybe we'll find out a little bit more about why is that. And today we're going to have um, a lot of topics, potentially. I have some some hidden bonus topics I won't call out. If we get time, we can potentially dive into them. So the main ones that we're going to be discussing are the that game company's 160 million US dollars investment, which is huge. And I'm a big player of, of Journey, so I'm excited about this potential. We're also going to um, discuss EA's loot box fine being overturned for FIFA Ultimate Team and also um, briefly discuss Ukraine and the situation about the games industry exiting from, from Russia. Um, yeah, and then maybe you'll find out what the hidden bonus topics are. So you've got to tune in for the whole episode. <laughs> so just before we move on, Anil is going to give us a lightning fast intro just so we get to know him a bit better because you already know Matt and Aaron pretty well. Anil? Yeah, hi everyone. I'm Anil, co-founder at First Light Games. We are a Web3 gaming startup based here in London, currently working on a Battle 3, uh, sorry, oh, a Web3 generation Battle Royale game, um, really focusing on compelling gameplay. In the past, I used to work for Capcom. I worked on titles like Street Fighter 4 and Resident Evil 5. I also got to work on the Smurfs Village, which was the first top-grossing game to use free-to-play as a business model. So I guess I've done a hit console game and a hit mobile game. I'm trying to make a hat-trick with Web3. Watch me either fail spectacularly or luckily succeed. And the Grandmaster of Games, no, I'm not. I'm actually awful at games. It's an ironic dad joke. That's me. Nice to meet you, everyone. I'm happy to be on Navic. Welcome. It's good to have you on. So when you say you're terrible at games, what, what kind of games are those? Uh, ironically, Street Fighter. I actually have an arcade cabinet in, in my apartment, but I, I'm not too good at it. L like playing, not so good at competing in it. Yeah, I won't discuss my Street Fighter capabilities. Um, I don't know if Matt and Aaron have some kind of flexing to do in fighting games. That's so bad. You, you, you oh, probably would be the grandmaster in my house. So. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, don't rely on us in inviting um, to, uh, what's it called, like a competition of fighting games. Just leave us on the sidelines, please. Um, okay, well, we'll just jump into the first topic that we got today. Um, and that is that game company's 160 investment. So from what I've understood, they're going to use this investment to scale up. I think they're going to expand to... Um, 100 more people, 150 more, which is a huge number for, for a studio. And they're also going to use the investments to develop upcoming games. Um, and just something I wanted to quote from a, an article I read about this, because I, I think it really helps provide context to what their mission is as a company. And I 
I find it particularly exciting. Um, so they say, <clears throat> we want to see a game that emotionally appeals to people of all ages, identities and backgrounds within a single experience. Animated feature films have had a genre-defining moments with Snow White and Toy Story, and will continue working towards this moment in the gaming world. And some fun facts, about 70% of Sky the Children and Lights audience is female, and about 50% of season pass sales were gifted from one player to another. And over 22% of the revenue comes from other merchandise, which is also gifted. I just, that seems huge. I, I personally can't imagine how I would even go about doing that on the game that I work on. So I'm quite curious to sort of dive into that with, with your expertise. Um, so I, I think, Aaron, first question for you. So the funding was led by a private equity I think giant called TPG and venture firm Sequoia Capital. I personally don't know a whole lot about the the funding um, the funding companies that are out there in the world. So, what does it mean for these particular companies to be funding that game company? Um, I I don't think you have to overthink it too much. Uh, I mean, TPG is a big private equity business. Sequoia is you know they're you know, for being pretty legendary investors over there. So, you know, when you get Sequoia on your cap table, like, you know, probably a smart idea to to take them on. Um, but I guess what's interesting to me about this is like neither of those businesses are really games focused, uh, but also it could just be a function of how much money is being raised. And the fact that someone like TPG, you know, just their their assets under management is pretty enormous. And so they can invest larger dollar amounts than a bunch of, you know, more gaming specific funds and even Sequoia too has pretty big funds. Um, uh, but yeah, beyond that, I, I'm not really, I wouldn't really overthink who the investors are and probably would focus a bit more on, wow, that's a lot of money. You know, <laughs> like what, what are they going to do with $160 million, which is pretty yeah. crazy. Well, what do you think, Anil? What are they going to do? Well, I think this is like a really interesting company in general, right? Because I think maybe a bit of the elephant in the room with that game company is that although they make games that are critically acclaimed, and I'm a massive fan, by the way, Genova Chen fanboy right here, I'm sure many people are, their games are actually not that commercially successful. So it does make you wonder what the kind of bigger play here is. But I think that this company is, it kind of reminds me a bit in the movie business of like Annapurna Pictures and the sort of uh, movies that they tend to fund which is sometimes kind of art house type movies, but also going more for sort of cultural relevance and sort of like multi-generational IPs sort of across the board, which is more the investment here. So it's almost like, ironically, for a company called That Game Company, I feel the things that they make already are much more than games, right? They're much more kind of experiences. So what does this funding round mean? I mean, look at the people they've got on board as well in terms of leading the strategic round and what they're going to do with it. I feel that they are seeing this as being... Yeah, the Pixar of games. What does that mean? That means making kind of entertainment that's cross-generational, that's going to be lasting for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, that ties into that kind of strategy, like what Disney do as well. Right? When you go to Disneyland, you know, when's the last time there was a Mickey Mouse movie? I, I can't even recall. But you all recognize those characters is, you know, the, the face of the brand. So if you wanted to power something like that, it's going to take some big bucks. And I feel that's where the investment's probably going to lie. You made some really interesting points there, Anil, um, sort of making the connection to movies and other sor sorts of media. Like you mentioned Annapurna. They also make games, right? Um, yeah. I think that's a really interesting comp. Um, 
I had a I had the privilege of hearing Genova speak um, when I was in school. Uh, I went to USC uh, for, for grad school, and he's a, a USC guy. And he came in and showed us Sky, an earlier build. I don't know if you've any of you have played it. It's a it's a really beautiful game. And um, you know, Maria, you touched earlier on like how much of the revenue comes from gifting. Actually, the whole kind of core mechanic of Sky is around giving gifts to other players and making friends and having companionship in the game and sort of exploring the the game world. Uh, it's it's really interesting and like highly recommend you try the game if you have not. But to the point about movies, um, one of the things that Genova spoke about when I had a chance to hear him was the idea that games traditionally only touch on a few different kind of emotions uh, that that humans are experiencing, whether it's like action or competition or, you know, something like that. But there's this broad spectrum of emotions that really are just neglected by most games. And that one of his goals was to kind of uh, address those in interesting ways through the medium of games. And I thought that was really fascinating. And then uh, Anil, to your point about Pixar, right? The article mentions that they're bringing on Ed Catmull as a what, like an advisor or something? Yeah, principal advisor on creative culture and strategic growth. Um, really interesting. Ed Catmull wrote a book called Creativity Inc. all about Pixar and like their process and their whole brain trust idea. Um, I'm going to make like a crazy connection here. So I used to work at a company <laughs> called Pocket Gems and we used to, we, we were actually asked to read that book as a company. Um, and Pocket Gems was also a Sequoia investment company for what it's worth. Um, oh. So anyways, a lot of really interesting parallels to the movie industry and creative uh, spaces with with this uh, round of investment. Really fascinating. Right. I'm, I'm trying to absorb that connection. That seems quite purposeful. <laughs> well, that, that book is amazing, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that book is amazing. I, I also work for a company that did exactly the same thing, but I have to say I didn't regret reading that book at all. I think your point about emotion is totally true. I mean, I would actually go as far as saying, as, as strange as this would sound, that I feel the game Journey has the best story I've ever seen in any game, despite the fact that there are no words in it. Mm. And the reason why is because the experience that you feel, um, I don't know about you, but I cried at the end, right? You know, so much for Grandmaster of Games. I mean, that's that's what it made me feel in just a kind of two-hour thing, uh, a playthrough. So that is amazing. That's what they can kind of pull off. And yeah, I mean, that book is all about how they managed to foster that creative culture at Pixar. And Pixar, to give them credit, they've not just made one movie, they've made five, six, seven, eight movies over decades. They've always retained the magic. And every time you think, oh, now they're finally going to fall apart, they come up with Wally, they come up with Toy Story three, four, whatever, and you're like, man, these guys are good. So to be able to create a culture like that, I think is going to be quite important to what they're trying to achieve. But I suppose, as you say, we still don't know 100% what they're going to try and do. But I think as to Matt's point, they are trying to create something that is more than just about games. Yeah, and I actually read the book when I was not even working in games. I think that's how relevant it is. If you just just read it, even if you don't work in it, in the area, it's, 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 it has some really good good learnings from it. And um, the only game that awoke that emotional response with me, um, apart from Journey, it was actually the ending, the true ending of Nier Automata. I don't know if you've played it. Uh, I, I cried when that happened. Then I was like, and now we're just thinking about the world and humans and whatnot. Um, but pulling back from that deep thought, uh, <laughs> Aaron, do you think, is it common to see premium gaming companies receive this kind of investment? Um, I think... I think that game company has existed for about 15 years or so, for quite a long time. 
I mean, it happens. I would say it normally happens when the company really wants to level up in a big way. Um, you know, typically if it's, you know, just to make another game or something like that, um, unless the game is just dramatically at another level, you don't need to raise that much money. Um, you see it more like, you know, when companies are trying to turn more into like create like a platform or create just like more of like a tech, you know, arm to something or, you know, just something much bigger than their next game. Um, and so I kind of wish we had more more clarity here. But it is interesting seeing the Pixar connections, making like the Aperna, um connection and all of that, because I do think it could point to expanding, you know, probably, you know, still adding new games, expanding, you know, the the scale of what they want to do with those games. But it could just even just be more of like a broader brand and storytelling ambition that just requires more funding to pursue other, you know, avenues and revenue streams. What well, what do you think can attract an investment company to um sort of bet on these companies that have a track record, like Anil said, that they're not as profitable as other games are because they do focus more on the storytelling. It doesn't have those monetization mechanisms um, as part of the game. Uh, what do you, if, if you try to put yourself in the shoes of whoever was deciding this investment, why do you think it's a, it's a bet for them? I, I can take a little bit of that. I, I find these investments very interesting because sometimes I feel it's not actually about pure money and return on what they're, they're seeing. I do feel that a lot of in, investment do sometimes go for things that either have like a ecological benefit to, to society or, you know, some kind of responsibility to the world. I mean, admittedly, 160 million is quite a, quite a big number to throw around for doing something like that. But I, I do see those sort of plays even from top tier investors from time to time. So I think that that's a, a partial reason for it. But again, I think just going back to the kind of like sort of Disney or massive IP play. I mean, you know, if you can really create cross-generational IPs, you know, the merchandise wing is huge. That's like a huge way to monetize from it. Um, subsequent movie rights, TV rights, so on and so forth. And so if you were going to bet on someone in gaming to make something that really captured the emotions that would make you feel things for years and years and years, they would probably be amongst the very top in terms of people you would go for. Like who else in terms of storytelling is really on that level? Perhaps Quantic Dream, who did like the Heavy Rain sort of series in France. Mm. Um, there's one or two others that come to mind, but... Um, yeah, that is so. And so, if, if you believe in that vision, that's a very long term bet. But if you're talking about a sort of 20 to 30 year play, it could be the future. Or you could also sort of say that, well, look at existing kind of movies right now and the way that media is changing, that there's an opportunity for someone to, you know, it, it's used quite often, but like, we're going to be the Disney of video games is uh, a spiel I've heard many a startup, including some I've worked at, use. <laughs> Um, for many years but there's no reason why that can't work I would even argue it's a bit surprising that it hasn't happened already perhaps Nintendo now that there's Nintendo land in Japan which I don't know about you guys is somewhere that I would pay a lot of money to go and visit because it just looks so awesomely cool I, there's definitely something there especially for generations that have grown up playing games which many now are do you think we'll see more and more games in the market that focus on more peaceful and inclusive mechanics that don't revolve around um, violence or, you know, having to shoot or kill other characters. I know there's a lot of that in terms of the indie game, but if we're talking about AAA experiences, um, what do you think, Matt? I think it's possible. I mean, it, it kind of touches on your previous question. Like, I think that Genova and, and that game company have a pretty good track record at this point of making games that 
um, are sort of built on those sorts of cooperative, um, peaceful mechanics. And if they've been able to show that they can do this you know, repeatedly and successfully, I think that's that's a great track record if, uh, from an investment perspective. I also think, um, you know, one of the things that was mentioned in the article, 70% uh, of Sky's audience is female. Um, so maybe the investors are thinking that there is an opportunity to serve an underserved market in gaming here. Um, so that might be another another perspective to look at it from as well. But yeah, I definitely think it's it's possible. And you know, you don't see exactly what they are doing necessarily with a ton of other big companies, but you know, something like Animal Crossing, it kind of scratches similar itches, or even like The Sims. You know, these are all like very different games, but you know, they have maybe have similar leanings. You know, they're both, you know, nonviolent, um, etc. I think, you know, just sort of like, you know, my question back to to you all as people who are much more in the weeds of making games is, you know, when you look at the movie industry, for example, and, you know, just kind of like kind of double clicking into the Pixar connection here, like Pixar has been like one of the very few companies that's been able to like last this streak of hits. Um, you know, maybe you could see it a couple other places like Marvel has done an incredible job, but most franchises, most, you know, teams, most, um, uh, I don't know, series have, you know, kind of had their ups and downs and maintaining just like hit after hit um, that, you know, is critically acclaimed and, you know, changes the the industry. Like that's actually incredibly rare to see. Um, and I would imagine, you know, in the games industry, it also would be extremely hard to pull that off. We definitely see franchises that, you know, are hits year after year, but it's more of them, you know, more like the copy paste formula that you see be implemented in in new settings. So I'm just curious to to hear your thoughts on like how do you like if you're trying to be like new and original and you know sort of industry changing in your storytelling and mechanics in a way that um you know that game company has done how like what do you have to do to make that replicable and <laughs> and like larger um like it seems like a like a really difficult undertaking. I'm just curious, like in the weeds of pulling that off, like what do you have to do differently from other companies to make that happen? Probably raise 160 million US dollars. <laughs> you can make lots of mistakes with games that don't work. To be to be quite honest with you, because there's a reason why companies no longer do that. It's rather sad, but it's true. In especially now that we've come to the PlayStation Five era, you know, you can call it the quadruple A game. It's not even the triple A game anymore. It's interesting how Maria, you mentioned, you know, well having like 100 people on a team seems kind of crazy, but I would say that's not crazy at all. If you want to make a, a quadruple A game right now, like Horizon that just come out, how many people or how many people on the latest Assassin's Creed? 800 people maybe, maybe more across the world working 24-7 dev cycles because it's timed around the world with one team doing multiplayer and one team doing single player content and one team doing integrations and all this kind of stuff. So um, yeah, I think... It's a really amazing ambition to try and make games like that. The reason why most companies don't is because there's a huge risk involved. And to put that kind of finance down, to not be guaranteed to make the return back would make many an executive extremely nervous. That's how you're probably going to lose your fairly cushy job <laughs> from, from you know backing a risk. You, that's why it's better just to make another Call of Duty or another Assassin's Creed because that works. Uh, typically, the way the model's going at the moment is that most big studios rely upon their cash cow IPs and then they'll try one or two new IPs per cycle, which they'll try and grow into a big franchise. 
Um, Ubisoft been a, a great example where Assassin's Creed was the big one, then Watch Dogs was the one they sort of tried to see if they could make that into a big thing. Kind of okay, but not really probably the success that they've tried, so they'll move on to another IP and another IP and try it. And to be fair to them, Assassin's Creed itself was a big bet at the start of the PlayStation 3 generation after the Prince of Persia successes, and that became their biggest ever series. So that, that's how it would work. Um, so I think to answer your question, you need to have a, a lot of finance to be able to soak up the misses. Um, because it's rare to be able to find the hit. And I suppose you back a company that has had some proven success in being able to make some innovative games work, which that game company certainly fits into that category. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I'm just curious because Pixar, for example, they don't throw out movies that flop. You know, like every everything I'm sure they scrap a ton of stuff behind the scenes, but, you know, everything that goes out is a hit. So I'm just curious, you know, just even from like applying the lessons from Creativity Inc., like how that works or is different in the the games industry to make something like that more viable. I know completely different industries, but yeah, I'm just curious about that. Well, I think for sure that having the right culture to make games that are made by great people is going to help you. But I think it is quite different and this could be a potential risk for them in the sense that Pixar always has the power to say, okay, well, a new Pixar movie is coming out, so you're going to go and see it because you know it stands for a certain brand of quality. Some companies get away with that. Nintendo, for example, when they announce a new IP like Splatoon, you're like, I'll give it a go. Nintendo make pretty good games, it turns out. Who would have thought? So you might play it. But that game company is not in that category right now. Really, only people in the industry really would, I think, associate that reputation with them. So I think that's a great question. I can't answer it other than just make a, a terrible comment about how I'm not sure it'll work, really. Yeah. Oh, you go, Matt. I saw you. Uh, I was just going to kind of double down on Anil's earlier point. You know, maybe it's the funding's not so much about coming up with these great creative ideas. It's maybe it's more about like scaling them. Right. So um, the to go back to the Pixar example, like they have the backing of Disney and Disney's distribution to all these movie theaters and streaming services and whatnot. And I think 160 million can go a long way towards user acquisition, app store optimization, localization and culturalization of your product, getting it into more um, like third party app stores or um, third party um, payment processors, just kind of like getting the scale that a, a real AAA mobile title needs to have these days to reach a global audience. As, as was mentioned by someone earlier, like we all kind of know that game company, but the sort of mass market of gamers maybe isn't as aware uh, at least not yet. And so this funding could potentially go a long way towards reaching that goal for them. Yeah, I personally, before I, I was working in the games industry, I knew about them because they sold a PlayStation combo of games. That was Journey, Flower and something else. And that's, that's just how I got to know them because they had these cool different games that felt like nothing else that, that was out there. Um, just thinking about my own experience on how much time do we have to iterate on mechanics to match a certain emotion and experience that we want the player to have? That takes such a long time. And I was reading uh, The Verges, this is called 10 Year Later, There's Still Nothing Like Journey's Multiplayer that was written by Jay, Jay Peters. And he was touching upon how like the experience of how much that game company had to iterate the game mechanics, like the whole game, just to create that connection, see people do journeys together. And that requires a lot of time. And a lot of companies, you know, we work with Scrum or designers have X amount of time and then that has to go to the engineers. 
And there's that pressure of keeping the pipelines going in terms of the development. A company doesn't, I think not many companies afford to say, okay, you take the time that you need to iterate and find that emotion that you want in the player. And maybe it's why we need these kind of investments of this size so that you have more creative driven game development rather than you know pipelines and production and trying to keep all of your engineers busy and moving forward with the game. But, but, but that's just it. I mean, there are definitely some investment vehicles out there that speci- specifically go for games like this. Like Kowloon Knights is another one that are kind of based in Asia. They back a lot of people. Like they back um, Ken, who did Monument Valley and things like that. So they they look for this kind of profile of person. You know, Annapurna is another example that go for these kind of like games that aren't maybe even expected to be a particularly big success. But at the same time, maybe what they're looking for is that one of these games could become such a cultural phenomenon that it ends up doing things that no game ever could because just through pure word of mouth, it'll end up being like, perhaps an example would be Parasite as a movie. Uh, how does like some random Korean movie end up winning the Oscars? Well, if you've seen the movies, it's quite good. <laughs> and word of mouth spread. And I remember someone said to me, oh, why don't you go check out this movie and see, oh, wow, okay, it really is quite good. So perhaps what that, that's what they're going for. But I think, as you say, it's just great that, you know, it's a very commercial world now, video games, especially with some of these massive acquisitions, which I think are justified given the amount of money that, that video games make. But it is important that some of these investments are still made because fundamentally, I think people who get into the business is because you want to make those really awesome games that stay with you for a lifetime, right? And I don't know if you saw the recent announcement, I think it was a few days ago, of Ikumi Nakamura. She's a former artist and director that contributed for games like Bayonetta and Ghostwire Tokyo, and she's recently opened up her own studio in Tokyo called The Unseen. If you haven't seen the YouTube video of the announcement, please go. It's absolutely amazing. And it just, I couldn't, I watched the video and then I thought, okay, I'm moving to Tokyo. I'm <laughs> going to apply and I'm going to work there because it it just wakes up that emotion of, yeah, games are art. Games are creative. It doesn't have to all be about making money and maximizing profits like you can come together as a group of people with different expertises and just make something that's that's beautiful and that's okay and maybe as I go through the as I work a bit more in the games industry I get really focused on monetization and that it's a business and sometimes it's good to have this jolt of no no it's it's okay to work on it as art I don't know Matt how do you feel like as a fellow product manager with this kind of stuff it's a balance and it depends on maybe um, your company or your studio's ambition in terms of scale. Um, I think, I don't know, this this is probably my bias, but like I think you need to be pragmatic and like it's totally acceptable and okay to make a game as a statement of art, but don't also expect it to necessarily be Call of Duty in terms of like revenue. Um, but, you know, if you're if, if everyone's aligned on that, that's totally fine. Like, go for it. Um, make the best game you can. Make make amazing art. I totally support that. I'm 100% in favor of that. But, uh, you know, we're going to talk about uh, loot boxes in a second here. And that's like a just a different approach, right? Like, um, those games are made to make money. They're not necessarily made to be pieces of art. So it just depends on your sort of business goals and your ambitions. Hey, Maria, just quickly, I was going to say, what's interesting about that that studio is that their lead game designer of Devil May Cry 5 was hired to be the game director, and she's also a woman. Um, and I think it's kind of cool, because that was kind of 
in a Japanese games company to be a lead game designer, one of their major IPs as a female is a pretty amazing achievement by itself. And the fact that she's just then left to become an actual game director, which wouldn't be the logical step in the Japanese company. Also, I'm curious as to what type of game it will be, because, you know, that's obviously a very combat heavy game, whether they're doing that or not, I don't know. But it makes me even more excited to see what they could do. And there's a lot of talent in that area in terms of, you know, ex-Tango game work people there as well. Yeah, definitely. I think seeing that video, seeing a woman, and then she also states that she's a mother and she's the director of this awesome new studio. It definitely struck a chord with me. And she deserves all the hype that she can get. So go and watch that YouTube video and support them. It's, yeah, it's really cool. So I think, yeah, Matt, you already did a little segue into the next topic, which is uh, EA's loot box fine being overturned. Um, I'm going to try to give a very brief context to what happened prior to this news article. Um, so in 2018, the Netherlands Gaming Authority that oversees gambling, they essentially said that um, FIFA Ultimate Team, the loot box practices were going against their regulations. So it's unlawful. It was gambling. And they said that uh, either they stopped selling their loot boxes um, or if they continue, they get a fine. I think it was like 500k uh, a week, something like that, up to, a, up, to, up to a maximum of 10 million euros. And um, EA did not pull the loot boxes. They kept them there. And so they reached the maximum fine that they would have to pay. But then they went and appealed in court um, and they appealed to the Administrative Jurisdiction Division, which is the highest court in the country, who essentially said that um, the loot boxes were part of a wider game of skill. Like the game was not all about just opening the packs and and the trading. And so that's OK. Um, a good summary that I found was that there's no... Um, it was not a pure game of chance like a slots machine. So it's not unlicensed gambling. And so they no longer have to pay the fine. And this opens a very interesting dynamic in the Netherlands. Is it okay now to have games that contain loot boxes? What do you know, Aaron? I actually don't know too much about this one. Um, I have uh, yeah, never really studied it, but... Uh, maybe that's true, but I do think, you know, just maybe a bit higher level that maybe someone will have a better take specifically on the Netherlands um, is just that, like, we, we've seen this trend for a while, but I think it's just going to become increasingly a thing, which is that different countries are just going to have <laughs> their own increasingly divergent rules around what is allowed on the Internet, what's like allowed for companies and platforms to, you know, just how things are managed. Um, digitally and you know loot boxes is obviously like it's important to the games industry because on mobile that's like an enormous revenue driver but it's also just like one tiny part of like a much larger conversation around um just regulation on the internet and how you know how companies should manage when every country has different rules but you have one product or service that you sell across all of it like, how do you comply at scale? And I think, you know, as we shift increasingly into Web3, where, you know, not only now do you have a product that sells a simple thing, but it's more financialized and people have different incentives um, that tap into even more, you know, financial regulation and things like that. Um, you know, the stakes just continue to get higher and the complexity of complying with 
com- countries like the like the Netherlands and how the Netherlands could be completely different from Brazil and Brazil could be completely different from Korea. Korea is completely different from Australia, etc. Um, you know, it just becomes like an escalating um, problem that you know companies like need to have like the tool sets to be able to solve for. So. Sorry, I didn't really answer your question on the Netherlands, but um, yeah, this has just been something that I've been thinking about a while, bigger picture, that I'm just trying to make sense of how it's all going to, like how companies are just going to deal with this kind of thing for everything going forward. From a developer perspective, you don't have too many options. At least that's my sort of initial reaction. If I'm making a game that is driven by gotcha monetization, I can't very well just turn that off for one country or some subset of countries. Um, You know, I I think most developers would consider the Netherlands to be sort of like a quote unquote tier one country, but it it would sort of get lumped together with a lot of Western European countries. And, you know, I I just don't think you're going to design your monetization system specifically for this this geography this area basically but you know there's an argument to be made like maybe this is a trend and i should be thinking about that as a developer and and have options there another option which i know i reference lost ark in basically every podcast i do now but like <laughs> lost ark just didn't launch in belgium and the netherlands they just didn't do it um because of the uncertainty around these regulations uh so that's i guess another option but it's very difficult if you're if you're making a game that's built on gotcha monetization, you can't just turn it off for one country and expect it to still be successful there. Yeah, and um, I think some I, I think it also depends how big of a company you are because I think a lot of the smaller companies they just pull their games from those countries because they can't afford to fork the experiences of of the game. But I know that, for example, uh, FIFA Ultimate Team, instead of pulling the game, I believe from Belgium, they stopped selling hard currency so players could still engage with the variable you know chance packs but they could only use the the currency that they could farm via the game but not not all companies can do that that takes that takes additional development time i don't know erin what do you think what do you think is going to happen for companies to be able to cope with these individual regulations because we also now have the app store allowing for example i think it's in korea to have other payment methods, but then not in other countries. It gets even more complicated. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just as the industry, as parts of the industry continue to mature, I think, you know, countries will have to generally get more on the same page around certain, like just the ways to treat certain things, like, you know, certain types of loot boxes, just so that it's easier for countries to work with. But I also think, and this is even like a bigger question than games too, like we'll just see more like tools and, you know, platforms come out that like, for example, like Cloudflare, which is not a gaming company whatsoever, but they they like help, they're sort of like an alternative to parts of like what you can do on AWS where um, data, you know, is stored and managed like in a compliant way, country by country versus, you know, mm-hmm. in like one central, you know, like AWS database or however that works. And so um, I think, you know, kind of between like getting more on the same page in some ways and more tooling being put in place in other ways to just help teams be able to manage parts of the stack, um, like it will get easier in some ways. But, you know, some of the stuff Matt was talking about where like, you know, if a country just has like, a completely different rule from others, you can't just cut that feature off and and expect it to do well. So there is some just like underlying fundamental reality that 
there is going to be a give and take in many circumstances, and that's just the world that we're we're going to live in. But also, as the industry evolves and changes, like I just have a feeling that the nuances of the conversation are also going to evolve too. It's not so like loot boxes have kind of been like the central point of conversation, and I have a feeling like we might not get fully settled on what the path is with loot boxes around the world, but I think we'll get like mostly settled to a status quo sooner than later. And then the conversation is going to shift to, um, you know, like what we saw in Korea with different payment methods, like how are, you know, these platforms as monopolies going to change? What does that mean for payment methods to, all right, web three is a thing. How do you, you know, these, <laughs> these platforms like manage NFTs and think about currencies and the regulators there. And that's going to be, I think the next wave of, you know, more country by country regulation that the games industry is probably going to have to rally around and figure out. So I, I guess in short, like parts of it will be soft for, but probably not super cleanly, but also like the industry has always been an evolution and it will continue to be an evolution. And so nothing is ever going to be perfect, but, you know, progress is still going to be made every day. Yeah. And touching on, on Web3, um, I found it interesting. I think the game is called uh, F1 Delta Time. I believe a couple of, a couple of days ago, they weren't able to renew the license with F1. And so now the NFTs that they issued don't have a license. And what's the value of them now? So I think all of these things will start popping up, like like you're saying. And something that in the court ruling, um, something interesting that they stated was that the tradability of packs on the black market is relative. The black market mainly focuses on trading complete trading complete accounts rather than individual packs or their contents. Since the packs are not a standalone game, they are not a game of chance. And Anil, well, I assume if we're talking about Web3, then maybe the fine would not have been overturned. That is correct. So that's the big kind of differentiation here. And that's why it probably is safer in the Netherlands to do a gacha now, but using Web3 won't. So a lot of countries, what they're kind of establishing is that because you tend to use virtual currencies and or you don't actually have any intrin intrinsic value of the item that you get from your gacha, it therefore cannot be... Um, seen as being gambling. Whereas with Web3, because you may open your FIFA Ultimate Team and you might get Lionel Messi, and Lionel Messi, you think he has a value of $100. And my expectation, the reason why I gambled in the first place on the loot box is because I thought I could turn my $10 investment into a $100 investment, which I can then sell onto a secondary marketplace. So that is a lot harder to argue is not gambling because you're getting this kind of real monetary value although it's crypto real money well okay <laughs> that's another there's a lot of lawyers working on this stuff kind of right now um so i do know that yeah in the web3 world right now you are highly incentivized not to offer loot boxes um in any kind of game although some games do absolutely do it um it'll be interesting to see where it kind of goes in, in that regard but i i do wonder actually i think it's a great point that aaron's made there i i actually have a feeling that web3 might take so much of the flack that some of these practices in web2 actually get away with it i i actually could see for example where there's been a big push to kind of ban loot boxes but i could see that with there being so much law required around like regulations and crypto and is it security is it governance tokens and what can you do with it? And how do you sell and resell that actually there's no time even <laughs> to deal with, you know, our, our loot box is good or bad mechanic. And therefore it just sort of stays there in the interim whilst bigger fish get fried. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it pans out, but that's just, just a theory rather than fact. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's something about me, about working on a free-to-play Web 2 game, that by hearing that, I'm sort of, ooh, <laughs> I won't mind that. <laughs> I mean, in many ways, a lot of that Web 3 NFTs are, it's like, kind of like a gotcha or loot box. Like, when you when you mint an NFT, you're still kind of pulling the slot machine when with these, like, randomly... Uh, generated traits and you don't know if you're going to get a rare or a common or whatever. It's the same principle, um, except it's Web3, so you can resell it on the secondary market mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, and, and whilst we're talking about crypto games, I'll just do uh, a, a little plug. Uh, a, a, a two weeks ago in a roundtable, we were discussing what Playtika's strategies could be for 2022. And Aaron, we did not think that they were going to hire a VP of blockchain, but they have. Yeah, who would have thought? Um, so, I mean, yeah, I guess a couple quick thoughts on that. Um, I mean, I don't think this is a huge move on their part. Like, we basically said that, like, hey, like, Platika, like, they need to come up with something new because what they have, their, you know, casino business has been pretty flat and they've made some good progress in, like, the casual genre, but, um, you know, it still is, you know, like, half... it has still been less than half the revenue. I think it just turned into half of their revenue and they need more to move the needle if they wanted to live up to their IPO expectations. And so it makes sense for massive companies. And I think, you know, Platika has about like 4,000 employees or something um, to like put, you know, some small percentage of their R&D dollars into exploring new things. It doesn't, hiring this one person out of, you know, 4,000 people is not, you know, a massive commitment necessarily into Web3. It's just a first step into an exploration. And I think this guy, which I don't really know um, much about him, but he he's more of like a, a tech guy and mm. less of a games guy. So my thought is like, it really is more to just explore like, hey, if the team wants to maybe start building games, like how, like on what platforms should they start building it? What security concerns? do they need to be aware of and really just kind of more exploring like the viability from that standpoint first. But, you know, if, if, uh, you know, those conversations turn out well, you could see them investing more in Web3. I think we're going to see that from many more companies just as best practices get sorted out from some of these, you know, smaller, more entrepreneurial Web3 native teams. Um, and maybe it turns into, into something bigger in time, but I don't know. When I see these things, I, I sort of feel like sometimes the the reaction that, you know, they get from like news organizations and stuff, it feels a little bit of an overreaction. Um, and these things will take a little bit longer to play out. But it's also not pr- unprecedented. We saw Zynga, you know, do a similar similar hire. And I think maybe a couple other big companies have done similar similar hires, too. But it's all very exploratory right now. Nothing super big and super serious yet, I don't think. Well, I mean, in that case, though, right, so Playtica did an IPO, right? So I think they are under pressure to say if their main competitor, in this case, Take-Two via Zynga, has made an announcement that they're going into blockchain, to retain that stock value, are you guys going into blockchain? They have to say something, because if they don't, that will come up in the quarterly meeting. It'll be like, hey, Mr. CEO of Playtica, I've heard that one of your major competitors is going into blockchain. Why aren't you? This at least is something to say, ah, but we might be going into blockchain, <laughs> or are we? But it takes that monkey off the back. That's definitely, I would say, 99% of what's going on here, hence why it's not a gaming guy, but a blockchain guy, so someone who's got credentials. But I think on top of that, any smart company is going to at least have some vested stake in it. I mean, 
as I said to you, I was involved in free to play very early. I remember working it purely by luck and thinking, oh my God, I'm telling you guys in the next five years, the biggest games in the world are all going to be free to play with AAA production values and people call me a crazy man. But when you saw the numbers, you knew it was going to be the case. And whilst that may or may not happen with Web3 games, do you want to be that company that didn't at least put a small bet on it in case it happens? That would surely be the most foolish thing to do. So it's a little bit protecting your own interest. But yeah, I think it's stock market talk. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Um, and so to carry on to um, the, the third topic today about Ukraine and, and the games industry, I think, Aaron, you wrote a really beautiful piece on the newsletter um, if you could do a, a quick intro. Sure. So, yeah, let's talk about it. Obviously, it's a it's a pretty sucky topic. War is horrible. War crimes are horrible. <laughs> Dictators are generally horrible. Um, but, you know, it's important. And even though it's a heavy topic, I think it's important to not ignore it and talk about what it means. So, you know, obviously, you know, we're not a political company, so we're not going to overly dig into the politics here, you know, even though as individuals, we probably all have, you know, strong takes. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, we should spend some time talking about the effect on the the games industry. And as you mentioned, Maria, I, I did write about this a little bit in last Sunday's newsletter. So um, definitely make sure to, to check that out. But I'll, I'll do my best to summarize some of that here. And then I'm, I'm curious if there's anything else that you all want to add. Um, but I think there are, you know, a couple big angles here. Um, the first one and the worst of it is, you know, just how war is affecting the people of Ukraine and specifically, you know, people in the games industry of Ukraine, which, you know, houses a bunch of native studios and talent, but it's also the host to a bunch of, you know, offices from larger non-Ukraine companies that, you know, have a presence um, in that country. And for the most part, I, I mean, I've been impressed with how companies are prioritizing the security of their people, taking care of their people, um, you know, donating to make sure everyone, you know, has what they need shelter wise, you know, food wise, etc. cetera. Um, but obviously, you know, it's a pretty enormous disruption to games getting made and work getting done there. And the war isn't over. So, you know, it's effect on the industry and the people there is likely going to continue for, for some time. Um, and it, it's obviously not unique to the games industry per se either. It's every industry. Um, but, you know, our hopes and wishes are with the people whose lives are dramatically changed by the war. And hopefully, um, you know, peace comes soon. Um, and then, you know, obviously there's the Russia side. And for most of the West, you know, it's harder to be sympathetic towards Russia, although it's generally, you know, important to remember that there's a difference between, you know, just the, the everyday people who are there and the leaders of the government. But the economic impact on the games industry is much larger than Russia than it is with Ukraine. And um, again, it's not even just the games industry, it's most every industry. But in you know, retaliation to Russia's attack on Ukraine, many countries and industries are economically isolating Russia. You know, we've seen much of the financial system step back from Russia. Social media is no longer accessible in Russia, or at least much of it. Um, and many industries are simply not selling to Russia anymore, including the games industry, where over the past couple of weeks, we've seen a ton, probably most notable companies like um, Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo, EA, Ubisoft, et cetera. You know, they've all shut down their storefronts. 
and have stopped shipping products to Russia. And I was looking at the numbers, you know, I think Russia is about like 2% of the games industry in terms of, you know, annual revenue, which means that like, yeah, I mean, we could see probably at least half of that, like 1% get knocked off um, of the games industry in the near term just because of of this, um, which obviously, you know, that that's going to affect some companies much more than others that, you know, people are going to get affected from that too. And there's going to be other externalities, you know, Russian studios are going to have a harder time raising money. Russian talent is going to have a harder time finding jobs and, you know, may have to move around and, you know, just lots of like, you know, when the world changes it, the lives of so many people have to change too. So, I mean, that's my, my brief synopsis of what's going on. And it's obviously really important just from you know it affects the games industry but also just from just being people you know and being human but i i i kind of want to turn to to you all and and just ask where do you think some of this is going obviously you know predicting war is hard and i don't i don't think we should do that and that's not that's not really <laughs> what i'm getting at but like just as you think about the situation and where it goes from here like do you think the games industry in Russia, you know, is permanent. Like, is it permanently screwed? Like, will we see China step up and try to take advantage of, you know, where the West is pulling out in various ways? Like, just any thoughts on, like, how does this shift the landscape going forward? It's a difficult question, I think. Um, you know, my, my experience uh, is that there are a lot of, as you mentioned, Aaron, there are a lot of um, game development studios and also like outsource studios in both Ukraine and Russia. And presumably that work will need to shift elsewhere. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to give credit to the folks at Deconstructor of Fun for suggesting this point, but like they mentioned that uh, they thought it would probably move to like um, Southeast Asia or Latin America, um, some of that work. So uh, I tend to agree with that point. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, I wonder, I just I had, a, I had a thought while you were talking there, like, I wonder, this may be completely off base, by the way, and feel free to tell me, but like, if, if, um, if sort of the global economy sort of normalizes relations with Russia in the future, I think there's sort of this take that like, Russia is so economically isolated right now, that they're going to have a long road ahead of them in rebuilding their economy, perhaps, um, you know, perhaps external currencies will go a lot further in Russia in the future once relations have normalized, hopefully soon. And maybe that work will return at a more like effective, like cost effective basis to Russian studios. I don't know. I could be completely wrong. I, I just had this idea while you were talking, but um, I don't know anything about politics. This is just my uh, naive point of view as a game developer. I think it's, you would imagine that a lot of their studios there will suffer a lot. I think maybe one thing that will get them out a little bit is that their major companies there are Playrix, who are actually headquartered technically in Ireland, if you believe their development takes place there. And you have Wargaming, which is headquartered in Cyprus. Um, that's actually a company I used to work for in the past. So I would imagine that once things are restored, it may not be such a problem because they can get around it somewhat. But I mean, I feel really bad because, you know, there's a lot of you know, just, yeah, as you said, the everyday guys that are just going to be utterly screwed by this and, and you know, through nothing they've done. And, you know, I, I, I don't really like to comment too much. And I'd say my, my grandfather is actually Ukrainian. So 
you know, it's a <laughs> tough time. You know? Yeah, I find it really hard to express my viewpoint. It's a really difficult topic. Um, I have really good co-workers from past past jobs that are from Ukraine. Um, part of my family is also from Ukraine. I have some really good friends who live in Russia. They're Russian and they're anti-war. And I, I understand that we need to do this. There's a part of me that I know this is affecting people in Russia who are anti what their government is doing. They did not vote for their government. They don't want this. And I really hope that this doesn't mean that the games industry and in Russia won't won't pick up again and you know we'll continue to be able to work with companies based there and with our colleagues even in outsourcing like Spirisop keywords um yeah and I can only I can't predict anything about the war I just hope it comes to a peaceful end and yeah my heart really goes out to everyone in Ukraine who's who's suffering and hopefully you'll get to safety um yeah it's really hard yeah it's hard and I think it it is important to support um, you know, those that are affected in some ways, like, you know, in the long run, just depending what happens in the region, I think, Matt, you're, you could be right in what you said, just some some work may flow to other regions. But uh, I mean, like, even, you know, like at Novik, like we have people we work with that help us, you know, behind the scenes, put things together that are located in Ukraine. And, you know, there's there's not much of anything we can do to to like truly like help relieve their day-to-day lives from being on the other side of the world, which sucks. But, you know, I feel like the worst thing you can do is just leave <laughs> and and just kind of give up just because something is disrupted. I feel like it is important to, um, you know, even if it's a little less economically viable in the interim or, you know, things get slightly disrupted and you have to wait longer for people to reply or you know things like that i still think it's important to stand by those people who need the help because they obviously need the help in everyday life but it's also like they also still need the work too in order to you know best get through these hard circumstances so um i i mean i admire you know the larger companies with means that are putting forward more of these donations and have set even like internal funds aside just to make sure that their teams, they have housing and their families are taken care of and things like that. But, you know, even as us, like we can't do that being a smaller team, obviously. But um, yeah, even even just making sure we can as much keep the status quo as possible for people to make sure they're taken care of is important. So, I, yeah, I just hope I hope most people are thinking similarly. Um, I don't it's, it's hard to carry on from uh, such a difficult subject. Um Considering we have maybe another five minutes, we can uh, talk about a, a lighter, a lighter side topic. It's one of the surprise topics I was holding out. So it's about Unity partnering with Insomniac Events, and I did not know what Insomniac Events, who they are. So that shows who I am. I clearly am not a raver. Um, if you know who they are, I know that you're a raver. <laughs> And I thought it was it was uh, fun because in the last roundtable we were discussing about um, in-world AI's virtual characters and their importance of having realistic NPCs and making these worlds worlds feel rich. And then there's an announcement about Unity with this partnering of they're collaborating to create a metaverse type technology for Insomniac for them to have these I don't know metaverse raves 
with some NPCs to make it feel like a big crowd and party? I don't know. What do you think, Matt? Um, I am not sure. Uh, I, like you, was not familiar with Insomniac, but for the listeners who are in the same boat, yeah, apparently they not. put on the Electric Daisy uh, Carnival in, in Las Vegas. So big EDM festival. Um, I don't know. My take is that this is like they see Epic doing stuff like this. Obviously, Epic being one of their biggest competitors on the engine side. And it's just like a growing sector that game engine developers need to be aware of, which is music and entertainment and sort of immersive entertainment experiences. So my my sort of um, naive take is that it's a competitive response to what's happening with Epic and and the acquisitions and partnerships they've made. Is, is everyone going to use this opportunity to announce that you're not a raver? <laughs> I mean, who yeah, wouldn't I'm want to live in a metaverse of music, Maria, right? Like, <laughs> no, but like, I, I'm so tired of the metaverse of music, the metaverse of fashion. Like everyone's, yeah. you know, trying to make their own metaverse, which doesn't really, it's like no one really knows how to use the term still. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I generally w- would agree with what Matt is saying. Like, this isn't like a huge move on their part. It's more of a it's more of an opportunity to put their R&D team to work to, um, you know, partner with someone in a high profile way to build something new um, that will get attention. And then, you know, once it once it works or is a hit, then they'll then they'll have more of the tool set built where they can start offering it to more people because, um, you know, Unity is like like this is pretty unique for unity because they really they just build like the tools and platforms right they don't actually typically like make the content or make the events mm-hmm. for anyone which is you know a bit more epic style but doing it as a partnership in this way is an interesting way to put like put a marketing spin on your r&d dollars um and so yeah i'm curious to see what will happen i mean i i personally don't think like this isn't going to be a big deal anytime soon and it's not because like the idea of virtual concerts is bad. I actually think it's it's pretty cool. Uh, it's just like I just don't I don't think we're there yet. Maybe even less on a software side, and even more on like a hardware side. Like even if you have cool software and you have <laughs> these great AI NPCs that you know, just thinking about the conversation on the podcast last week was hilarious. But you know, they're they're made to rave. Like that's their <laughs> that's their their core purpose. Um, um, <laughs> Um, I just like looking at that on your phone or like on your, your computer is not going to be nearly as immersive as an experience as like what, you know, technology will be even like 10 years from now when VR is more developed or, you know, things like that. So I don't think this is going to be a big deal, but it's, it's a cool headline that's going to get them attention and give them an excuse to, to invest in something that maybe will be more relevant in the future. Yeah, a bit like a broken record, Unity also IPO'd, right? So again, they're on the stock market, (laughs) expectation. I mean, it's true, you have to follow what's a suit. The metaverse is the buzzword of certainly the last two years. You have to have some kind of play. I do find it interesting, though, that that's their interpretation of the metaverse because that can mean different things to different people. I think, for example, looking at Microsoft's play with what they feel the metaverse is, I feel it will be being able to take some kind of object or character across different games. I, I feel it's... The area they're going through, whereas they clear here, Unity clearly sees, as you as has been mentioned before, the Fortnite style raving and misbehaving in a virtual rave as being 
what they consider pseudonymity bias. Why not both? Um, could be all of these things. But I, I think, again, they have, they're under some pressure to at least be seen to be making some inroads into that. Otherwise, again, it seems pretty weak when you're an engine developer and you're not doing any development on what is supposed to be the next big thing in not just games, but tech, full stop. Mm-hmm. And I will just quickly add, Insomniac, um, the first time I read this, I was thinking like Insomniac Studios, which makes like Spider-Man. I'm like, what are they doing with this? But, like, no, this is, you know, it's like. That would be cool. cool. Yeah, that, that would be cool. The Spider-Man metaverse of music. Uh, maybe there's a spinoff there. Um, but uh, but no, like Insomniac, I mean, obviously is like a more of like a concert rave business, but they're also um, 50% owned, I think, by Live Nation, which is like you know, like the the big, massive player in the space that, you know, they own Ticketmaster, they own tons of venues, they own um, a, like a bunch of different um, uh, festivals, and they even have like a, a big like artist management arm. So like most of the big artists that you're thinking of, they like have their entire concert concert circuit run through live nation and live nation has you know they own 50 percent of insomniac but they it's also they have holdings of lots of others too so um if this works um i mean they kind of have inroads to the largest player in the space where this could be adopted in a bigger way again i still kind of struggle to see it just kind of given the state of Mm. technology right now and what level of immersion is realistic but you know once it's ready like this actually is a pretty great first partner to have in my opinion that's uh, that's a fascinating connection i didn't realize there was the live nation connection um in a in a previous life i worked briefly for aeg which is their primary competitor in ticketing and venues and artist management and stuff and you can see the parallels there right like they could reproduce um real world venues in this edm metaverse or whatever there's like all sorts of interesting connections they could potentially make there but um you know, I'll just I'll just finish by saying like this is a electronic music metaverse, right? Like someone let me know when they make the heavy metal metaverse because that's the one that I want to be in. And probably based on our conversation last week, that's probably where Manu wants to be in like the the meta mosh pit, the NPCs there. <laughs> that's where Manu wants to be. I know. So I'm, let me know when that happens because I'll be excited about that. I was thinking when we were talking about peaceful games, I was thinking, oh, the NPCs will be safe from Manu. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you were into heavy metal, Matt. Yeah, we should get into some heavy metal concerts. Yeah, I'm into heavy metal too. But I'd also rave next to Spider-Man. So I'm diverse in my music (laughs) taste, I suppose. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, we reached just about an hour's mark. So we'll unfortunately have to wrap up the episode today. I hope you enjoyed it and you'll join us again next week. And Neil, thanks for joining us for the first time. Thanks for having me. It's really cool to have you on. And... I think Matt's going for some kind of gamification of podcast panelists, like three three episodes in a row. You unlocked an achievement. Claim <laughs> claim your reward. I'm going for the plat. <laughs> what a champ. Yeah. How many do you need to mint your NFT? That's what I want to know. Oh wow. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, if you want to continue the discussion as well, join us on the Navic Discord. We're around there. Just send us a message and we, we reply if you want to join in and share your thoughts on what we discussed today. Thanks, everyone. I'll see you next week. 